Dear friends, thank you all so much for another wonderful year. Uh, this is year, the end of year two of the one. Um, we're really grateful for everybody's support, for everybody listening, and for helping build a community of people who are engaging critically on issues facing six uh, the world over. Um, I have been tremendously enriched by the experience of creating this show and uh, meeting all of the guests and interacting with the folks who listen to it, and I could not ask for more. Um, it's been a challenging year, of course, uh, for many, many reasons, uh, but your engagement, the relationships I've built through this show have been a huge part in sustaining my journey through it, and I hope that we've been able to help you in some way. Um, here's looking forward to 2021. Let's all remember the self-evident power and grace that the message of the Guru brings. Let's be unafraid to uh, stand as six for ourselves and for all people, for the betterment of all. And let's continue the revolutionary ethos of Guru Nanak Dev Ji in the rest of our lives into this next year. And with the blessings of Guru, we will continue to fight for what's right. And um, yeah, we're in this together, and I just want to send all my love and thanks to all of you uh, for listening. And I uh, also want to give a special thanks to the producer of this show, Rishwajit Singh, who's really done a great job to make it a quality work, um, and uh, who has just been an excellent partner in creating this show, a brilliant mind, and... Um, a great sick. So thanks to him. And once again, thanks uh, to all of you and all love and blessings uh, to you and your families. Hello and welcome to The One with Shabad, a podcast about Sikh history, philosophy and culture. Hosted by Shabad Singh and produced by me, Rishwajit Singh. In this episode, Shabad interviews Navyuk Gill about the historic and ongoing farmers' protests in India. Navyog is a professor in the Department of History at the William Peterson University in New Jersey with a doctorate from Emory University, Atlanta, Georgia. He specializes in modern South Asia, labor history, agrarian studies, caste politics, global capitalism, post-colonial theory and subaltern studies. They talk about the history of agriculture and its politics that led to this historic moment, including the Green Revolution, Anandpur Sahib Resolution and many, many more. They talk about the bills and what they're really trying to achieve the farmer's strategies, Sikh ethos and its relationship with the secular and universal movement, and its future. But before we begin, if you appreciate the work Shabad and I do to bring you the show and highlight the great work people in the community are doing, consider supporting the show on Patreon. It is only the support of our generous patrons that we can continue making this show. Go to patreon.com slash the one podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash t-h-e-o-n-e podcast and help us out with as little as $2. And now, on to the show. Navyug Gill, welcome to The One. Uh, thank you, Shab. Um, so we're here to talk about, of course, the 
uh, uprising going on uh, in India, spearheaded uh, from the Punjab. And um, your your uh, your study is, uh, I think, perfectly suited for this. And um, I wonder if uh, we can start with a bit of context around this moment. There's obviously a really long history um, of agricultural policy that dates back to the colonial era, et cetera. But um, to condense things a bit, can, can you tell us a bit about um, the, the practices and policies instituted in, in the 20th century that were, were known as the, the Green Revolution and what that entailed and, and how that um, changed farming in India and, and uh, what, what its effects uh, were at the time. Sure. First, let me just say Fateh to all the one listeners. Glad to be on the program um, and salute the work that you do to raise these uh, difficult, important issues uh, for our community. Um, yeah, this is a very broad topic. Um, lots of people have written um, uh, very interesting pieces about this. Um, so we're living through a extraordinary moment. Um, and the scenes we're watching, uh, you know, on our screens, uh, you know, people pushing past riot police, tear gas canisters, batons, encircling the capital of the world's so-called largest democracy, simply astounding. And uh, yeah, there is a real need to understand some of the kind of history and politics that got us to this moment. Um, so I guess, you know, to not have it become such a long um, narrative, we can just say that um, there's a transformation in agriculture in the late 19th century with the onset of British rule. Um, what the British introduce is a new kind of volatility in the lives of the people that became peasants. Um, and it's a volatility that structures their sort of uh, cultivation practices, their land holdings, um, and the sort of marketization of crops. Uh, that goes on for about 100 years until partition and independence in 1947. Um, so this is where it, it becomes kind of more important for us to, to understand the, the present. Um, after partition, um, the new country called India is was forced to uh, address two things. One, um, that colonial volatility, um, the uncertainty in people's lives um, had to be addressed to an extent. And at the same time, there were tremendous food shortages and uh, famine-like conditions in India. So uh, the Indian government needed to increase food production. So it's a sort of combination of those two things that led to uh, what became known as the Green Revolution. Uh, this has been written about, lots of people have talked about it. Listeners ought to do the work of, of, of reading the literature, but um, it's a particular sort of uh, developmental capitalism. Um, and Punjab was the laboratory for this. Um, it entailed um, using you know, new uh, techniques, strategies, and infrastructure to raise uh, agricultural production, um, we're talking about high yield seed varieties, uh, pesticides, fertilizers, uh, mechanization through tube wells and tractors. Um, uh, and that sort of bundle of technologies was underpinned by two very important institutions. One was 
um, minimum support prices so that farmers could be assured of a minimum price for the crop they were going to grow before they grew it. And secondly, a um, government-run market where they could sell their crop at harvest, uh, where it would be weighed, sorted, sold, and stored, and then shipped to other parts of, of the country. Um, and these are colloquially known as mundis. So those two things were the kind of public uh, infrastructure that underpinned, like I said, the new technologies and strategies. And that is what led to the sort of explosive growth in crop output. Um, after sort of in the late 1960s, um, Punjab, which is 1.5% of the territory of India and has something like 2% of the population, produced something like 60 to 70% of the wheat and rice for the entire country. These are staggering numbers. And it did that for decade after decade after decade. Um, and that is why, for example, you have something like rice grown in Punjab. Uh, you know, paddy is alien to Punjab. It requires you know, 10, 12 inches of standing water for you know, half the year. Um, Punjab doesn't have those kinds of water resources or those kinds of monsoons. But because the Indian government needed rice, they introduced you know, those uh, seeds and that technology and that irrigation system to Punjab. And so people began to plant rice because they were assured an MSP for it. Um, now, the other part to just quickly mention, I, you know, again, I don't want to take too long at this, but um, right away, there were people that um, opposed what was happening in the Green Revolution. Um, environmentalists immediately saw that this is going to devastate the water table. It's going to poison the soil. Um, economists uh, saw that such growth was unsustainable. Um, social uh, activists uh, could see the friction over caste, over land ownership, over gender relations. Um, and even you know, political parties uh, like the Shrovne Kalidal um, wanted to bring about a different model of center-state relations and autonomy, um, and and you know put forward a document uh, called the Anand Prasad Resolution in 1973 that sought to uh, reorient uh, the agrarian economy, amongst other things. Uh, all of this was ignored. Um, uh, all of this was even maligned by uh, the Indian National Congress. Uh, and so that system sort of continued from the late 60s onward. And um, it had this sort of mirage of prosperity, but beneath it were these you know, social and economic and environmental fissures that deepened. Um, that's where, so, that's what led to, uh, or so that's maybe the context for what happened over the summer. And, 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 and going back a little bit, um, it's my understanding that there was a profound element of American involvement in the institution of the Green Revolution. Mm. And, and you described Punjab being used as, as a laboratory. Um, who, you know, what was that American involvement and, and who were the ultimate benefactors or rather beneficiaries of this experimentation and implementation of policy 
um, both in the Indian context, but also in the American or international, or let's say loosely the global capitalist uh, context, what, what, who was really kind of benefiting off of these changes? Yeah, this is also a, a great question and a, and a sort of fascinating history of um, these international players that uh, came to shape um, the sort of uh, developmental agenda of post-colonial states um, after World War II and, and decolonization. Um, so perhaps the most important one is the Ford Foundation, um, which uh, was um, at the forefront of developing these new seed varieties, uh, hybrid seed varieties, um, you know, manipulated under microscopes, and, you know, sort of half the height, twice the yield, requiring all sorts of chemical pesticides and fertilizers, um, and working hand in hand with the State Department to push and promote um, these across what we used to call the developing world. And um, so, so it was that kind of alignment of interests, right? Um, the scientists and the um, uh, business sort of companies here uh, wanted to test out these products, wanted to promote them and wanted to make profit from them. Um, the US government wanted to facilitate that circulation of technology uh, in the context of the Cold War to keep these countries within the orbit of, of, of the US. Um, and these countries like India uh, were in desperate need of new technologies to increase uh, crop output because they had been devastated by centuries of colonial rule and needed to you know, not have their people starve. Um, and so it's that sort of alignment of these three uh, forces, right? The, the Indian government, the American government, and these uh, multinational sort of uh, companies and foundations that sort of came together um, to, to put the Green Revolution technologies um, in Punjab. And when I say Punjab, I should just add that uh, we're talking about a pre-1966 Punjab, um, which includes Haryana and Himachal Pradesh. Um, and those were the places where these were implemented. And that is why those are the places primarily where this upsurge has emerged. And this leads, as I understand, um, to something that's been referred to as as a second green revolution, um, where initially, as you've described, it was the Indian state that was um, at the forefront of implementation of these new processes and um, and and like distribution of these new uh, technologies and um, you know. Uh, seeds, et cetera, seed varieties. But that, and, and, and that kind of perfectly sets up um, companies in the future, private companies, to um, sort of continue this, this uh, process of, uh, I guess, like efficient, like uh, making efficient the, the uh, agricultural process in, in these locations. And, and ultimately, these people, because they've, the, the farmers rather, because they've been, they've adopted these new 
systems are beholden to these new companies that offer, uh, you know, quote unquote, more and more efficient systems and technologies, and, and they kind of become beholden to these corporations and, and in cycles of debt. Uh, would you say that's like a correct encapsulation? And, and can you talk a bit about that process that um, extends like beyond the initial late 60s period? Right. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great way to put it. I think um, we should just focus a little bit on that word efficiency and, you know, bear in mind yes, that- Yes, quote unquote efficiency. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. And, you know, um, efficiency is one of the buzzwords the companies would use, but we have to remember that their actual ultimate objective is profit. Every quarter, more and more profit. So everything else is actually incidental. Um, it, it, it doesn't really matter what you produce. It doesn't matter how you produce it. It doesn't matter, you know, the social, ecological ramifications. You're just, you know, fixated on producing profit. And so um, these technologies, yeah, they increase output. Um, how do they do it? By making you dependent on all sorts of ancillary costs, like I said, fertilizers and pesticides, um, you know, the timing of when one has to plant, uh, how one has to use a tractor to plow up the ground, how much water one needs, uh, you know, tube wells that are going to, you know, flood a field for months on end. Um, so all of those things are also costs. Those are also, you know, real, you know, uh, new things one has to uh, engage in. Um, and if the company can keep you dependent on them, it's even more profitable. So that's the kind of, um, that's the, at the core of the approach is, uh, you know, behind the buzzwords of efficiency and innovation, it is to get people on this nightmare treadmill of more and more forever and ever. And mm. um, yeah, I mean, I think we see that in, in all sorts of fields uh, across our lives. You know, like a new phone is out every year, new yeah. cars, new laundry detergents. I mean, so much of it is utter nonsense. Um, and if you think it doesn't actually improve your life much at all, uh, yet it's kind of pitched as this is the latest, this is the most innovative, this is the, the best and better and better. Um, but yeah, that that's what happened with, with um, in a field that, you know, is uh, sustains now, you know, a billion people. In terms mm -hmm. of what they eat. So, from you said from the beginning that there were detractors to these policies, and there was opposition to these policies, and you mentioned as well the the um, Anandpur Sahib resolution uh, put forward by the Shromani Akali Dal. Um, can you talk a bit more about what this about that opposition and and what a uh, and I'm, I'm sure it's difficult to encapsulate over simply, but but what would be what was a, a divergent agricultural policy that was being put forward by organ by groups like Akali Dal and 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 other detractors from um, from the Green Revolution? Right. I think the importance of your question uh, is that uh, the usual narrative about this issue is that there was this boom for 30 or 40 or 50 years, and then now things are sort of not working, and now we have to make some changes. 
Um, and that's the narrative of the government, right? And that's the narrative of the right wing. The reason why this history is so important is to emphasize that right from the onset of the Green Revolution, people were opposed to it. Um, and not that they wanted to go back to the good old days, but they could, there's no such thing as good old days, right, for us. Um, <laughs> but because they said this is an unsustainable, unviable um, model, and we ought to have a different one. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a bit like, you know, uh, everybody mocks Margaret Thatcher um, these days, but, but so many people actually believe that there is no alternative, right? Um, right. There were alternatives, and they were in many different directions. So the Anandpur Sahib resolution is like the, the, the most glaring, um, uh, you know, a prominent uh, instance of this. Um, and it's, a, it's a, a sort of capacious document that uh, addresses agriculture and cultivation, but all sorts of other topics um, at the time, you know, pressing for Punjabi society. Um, and it was part of a regional articulation of a different vision for center-state relations. And, you know, the Congress party, I mean, everybody today is sort of up in arms about the BJP, rightly so. But we have to understand that the Congress party uh, did everything it could do to undermine, uh, co-opt, subvert democratic expression in Punjab for five decades. Uh, they declared martial law. Uh, they bought off politicians, um, they, you know, subverted procedures, uh, overthrew governments, um, just to keep their grip on power. Um, and this is Nehru, and this is Indira Gandhi, and the rest of them. Um, and so the Anandpur Sahib resolution was immediately branded a secessionist document. And in the mainstream Indian media, and we, again, we talk about the Godi media, it's been a Godi media for a long time. Um, mm. they, they, they wholeheartedly went on board and, and said, this is a secessionist document. This is, um, you know, these are terrorists. This is a non-starter. And, uh, you know, maligned it. Um, when anybody that is serious uh, who reads it will see that these are, not, these are not even, you know, outlandish extremist claims. There's nothing wrong with making all sorts of claims, but this is a very modest document, um, yeah. and it's one for its time. So, and that's why I said, you know, the environmentalist angle, the social activist angle, the sheer economic angle were all present, and and you know, different people took it in different strands, and like I said, they were all ignored, and so that's yeah. why now when the BJP comes to power, uh, you know, six, six seven, or seven years ago. They say, okay, well, we have to do something about agriculture. Agriculture has been in the dumps and we're coming with this new innovative idea. And, and that's where we should pay attention to history and say, no, people were forwarding different visions right from the onset and they were ignored. Uh, and we ought to um, pay attention to that literature to think through other possibilities for the present as well. Can you talk a little bit about what those possibilities were like what were they actually presenting what was a vision that that was being articulated um for how things should actually be run for example i know that you know and this is a this is like a hairy um topic but the non-persive resolution uses the word 
socialistic in terms of its uh, economic uh, vision. Um, now, now socialism is a, is is a broad term, and I don't think that it necessarily is referring to like uh, a, a a an orthodox kind of Marxian analysis, but they were talking about something more collective uh, in terms of ownership and dispersal of of revenue and and a sharing of resources. Can you talk a bit about what the actual visions were that some of these um, that these detractors were laying out for how things could actually go? Yeah, I mean, this is um, it's a it's a so again, like I, I keep saying the same thing. It's kind of vast area, and there were so many competing visions. Um, sure, but um, and also on the on the question of socialism, we should bear in mind that uh, the word uh, has a kind of strange career in South Asia. Um, the Indian government itself claims it's socialist, right? And and you know, right. you know, touts uh, socialist principles. Um, so um, not a grain, but like a mort full of salt when we hear that uh, from these people, <laughs> right? Or not a pinch, right? Um, so yeah. So one of the issues would be something like um, uh, serious land redistribution. And land to marginal farmers or landless farmers, um, and and enacting that kind of of a redistribution, so everybody had a kind of land holding, um, expansion of credit facilities, so that people are not beholden to uh, you know private lenders to pay for the rising costs of inputs. Um, of course, the most important was a genuine. Uh, broad-based program of industrialization. Um, that if we, you know, agriculture um, can sustain a certain number of people, uh, even as it becomes more intensified and has greater yields, there has to be a parallel project of industrializing Punjab um, to produce, you know, create a manufacturing base um, and employ large numbers of people. Um, you know, that was a kind of, that's a that's a model of, you know, developmentalism and growth, there's lots of controversies around it, but lots of people were, were saying that that is absolutely essential, that um, we don't want to just be the supplier of raw materials. You don't have a future if you're just producing, mm-hmm. um, you know, the basic uh, consumption goods that are going to get developed and processed elsewhere. Um, also, uh, you know, local c- control of um, MSP and crop uh, patterns. So mm. people said right away, why are we planting rice in this place? The rice doesn't belong here. Um, and, you know, you're, you're, you're having to soak fields in, like I said, 10 inches of water for five months. Uh, you're going to destroy the water table. It's going to go deeper and deeper. And then you're using all these pesticides and fertilizers. You're going to poison the water uh, table. Um, find and, and this, in a sense, is go back to the crops that are native to this area, um, plant them here, market them, package them and distribute them because people do need to eat those crops as well. Um, so so and, and so for for all in all of those kinds of ways, um, people were making very sophisticated, thoughtful arguments about a different policy. And the Indian government ignored all of this. And that's why some people say um, they sort of used Punjab as a colony. 
Let's right. just put this wheat rice cycle, you know, monocropping pattern in this place, and let's get these tremendous yields that we can use to feed the rest of the country. So we have some credibility as a post-colonial government and be damned with the consequences. And in debt, those doing the actual growing to, uh, and I don't know how much, I mean, I, I don't want to sound conspiratorial, but, and I, I wonder what, if you can kind of illuminate this, but I mean, do we see um, this, this sort of debt cycle and, and, and technologizing of agriculture as sort of part of a colonial project within the country to sort of maintain a certain amount of dominance over this region? Yeah. I mean, I think it's not, it, yeah, we, we, it's not, um, it's not conspiratorial because there are such things as conspiracies, right? Exactly. <laughs> there, are, yeah. there are people yeah. that sit in rooms and plan things. Um, now how, how, uh, outlandish and paranoid we become is a different question, but um, conspiracy is very real. But um, I think it would be, I mean, we would put it on a spectrum of um, making people dependent and binding them to certain technologies to increase profit and maintain obedience, all along to um, callous disregard for people and their lives and their autonomy. So whether it's a kind of scheme or it's, um, uh, uh, you know, un being unconcerned, um, it was unconcerned for the consequences. It's, it's very much along that spectrum. Um, and, and that's why it sort of, you know, continued for decades and decades. And, and that's what led to you know, land fragmentation and, you know, increasing um, indebtedness, right? I mean, they would say something like, um, you know, in order to have a tractor, you probably need six acres, seven, maybe 10 acres of land to have a tractor. Now, if you have four acres, but then you have to plant these new seed varieties, um, they require plowing your field this many times before sowing the next seed. And so even if it's not viable, because the calendar for planting is getting tight because you need to harvest at a certain time because you have to, even with four acres, you buy a tractor and the government might right. give you a loan to buy that tractor, but a loan is not a grant. It's still a loan. And so you have to pay that back. And then a similar thing with, with tube wells, um, you know, you don't create a irrigation system. Uh, instead you sort of give wholesale, you know, license to anybody to, 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 you know, go down and, and dig their own well, um, which which is is a kind of nightmare uh, of, of of you know people just digging deeper and deeper year after year to get more and more water. Um, so in all those ways, I mean, the the kind of strain on the economy then has a strain on social relations um, mm. and the environment, and it really has this sort of um, comprehensive effect on Punjabi society. So. So, I mean, speaking of social relations, you know, these these policies that you're describing are things that uh, for uh, it, kind of to use the word in, in the wrong sense, they're ecumenical and that they don't really discriminate who they're hurting, um, as I understand, whether you're a Hindu farmer or a Sikh farmer, 
you're being affected by these policies and finding yourself in this debt. Um, in the kind of uh, preceding time after the Anunpursaib resolution, we see a large um, mobilization, as I understand, um, of farmers that are opposing these laws uh, or, or opposing these, these practices and demanding uh, this, this different vision. Um, what was, you know, you described the state repression that was used uh, to, to frame uh, the Anunpursaib resolution as exclusively this sort of separatist uh, uh, document. Uh, and I think one also that was sort of inherently um, only sort of for Sikhs. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about how um, the social element of kind of intercommunal relations was was played upon um, by media and, and by the state to to fragment um, a response to uh, to the state's actions, um, if if you see things that way, um, and 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 how um, Sikhs sort of became this this uh, single singular sort of um, boogeyman, if you will, that um, kind of play into the state doing what it wants to do in the region. Um, and I don't know if I've worded that quite quite. Well, but uh, do you kind of get the gist of what I'm 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 talking about here? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot there. <laughs> uh, it's a, absolutely it's kind I, of a vast uh, topic, but absolutely, but, yeah. So I, I just maybe a point to clarify though, we should just say a little bit about the 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 you know opposition to the Green Revolution. Um, we can't misconstrue it as something imposed by the central government and fought against by you know farmers on the ground. No, sure. um, when I'm what I'm describing before, what I described before was there were alternative visions at the time by environmentalists or economists or social activists, even some parties. Um, you know, farmer incomes did go up, and there were lots of people that benefited from the the green revolution, um, mm-hmm. in the sense of their you know year after year income, um, and. You know, people were saying this is a mirage, it's not sustainable. But there were other people that said, you know, this new arrangement, we can make the most out of it, and we can, you know, increase our land holdings, and we can invest in these new new technologies, and with that money, we can go into transporting, or we can, you know, build a storage facility, we can, uh, you know, send a family member abroad. So, so it's a kind of mixed bag. We can't say that it's kind of unanimously opposed on the ground sure. and then it was, you know, people unwillingly just sort of took this on. No, it's a, it's a kind of messy um, time um, because you have to imagine people are, you know, devastated from partition and independence. And um, when these things become available and you're assured a remunerative price for your labor, that has an appeal. Um, so, 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 and then, and that, and then I think more and more people as the years went on and decades went on, more and more people started saying, this is a problem. More and more people have gotten involved in say, pesticide-free, sustainable cultivation, um, 
trying to you know go the organic route or trying to find crops that are more um, you know indigenous to the region. These are efforts here and there. Lots of people you know are involved in it, but it's not widespread because very often it's the kind of fortunate larger landholders who can indulge in such uh, alternatives. Uh, it mm-hmm. hasn't gone broad and, 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 and sort of mainstreamed because that comes with government policy. Um, now to the other point you're making, yeah, we, I mean, that's where it's, a, again, like a really large topic about um, center state relations and religious identities and um, the sort of mid to late 70s onward. Um, there is a, and then to the extent that uh, the government uh, is trying to you know, target one group or another. Um, yeah, I mean, which way would you like to go with that? How do you? What... Well, you know, it's. Uh, I, I would. I would like to focus on on how demands for things like an alternative vision of agricultural policy become conflated with exclusively uh, like communal demands on the part of uh, uh, one group and how the, the state um, can, can frame the, or, or, you know, manufacture consent about sort of who, who is the bad guy and who is uh, uh, the good guy. And, and how that can kind of that public um, framing of of a situation can allow for the kinds of repression that take place in Punjab and 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 kind of how things that are framed as oh you know th- these are uh, framed as this is the secular state opposing the like religious nationalists. Um, when, when the ultimate sort of the bottom line reasoning for that repression is economic. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a nice way to put it. Um, and, and provocative. Um, so, you know, um, we should first, I guess, call into question the claim of the secular state and what is, you know, biblical secularism. And um, you know, what is Christian secularism here, right, in this country? And what does it mean for everybody else uh, and how they're supposed to position themselves vis-a-vis a majority? Uh, and in, in India's case, it's a, it's actually a minority that has masqueraded as a majority. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the issue, you know, begins right from the onset of partition and independence. And um, there's actually lots of people that are working on this now and thinking about what was happening in Punjab, what were the debates? Um, you know, there was an earlier kind of nostalgic reading of a kind of united Punjab. Uh, other people have kind of put forward, you know, what were SEC doing at the time? Um, what were their aspirations? What were the assurances they were given? Um, what's that relationship vis-a-vis Hindus and Muslims uh, and others? Um, but, you know, one of the issues coming out of the early... 1940s was this articulation of, you know, what will happen to SEC in a post-colonial mm-hmm. India? And when the Muslim League starts making the demand for Pakistan, uh, the, you know, the question becomes, this Pakistan is imagined on, you know, a huge part of Punjab. It actually entailed all of Punjab. 
And so mm-hmm. um, sect groups at the time, some are saying, well, what should happen to sect? And one of the kind of um, compromises uh, that is uh, forged at the time is that staying in a, or, or being part of uh, India, uh, sect will enjoy autonomy and respect for uh, their history and culture and traditions. Um, uh, and it would be a sort of uh, a mutually beneficial arrangement. And so that decision, uh, this is a simplification, but that decision is sort of forged in the, in, in the, in the, in the late 40s. And in 1947, you know, something like two thirds of Punjab ends up in Pakistan, one third ends up in India. And immediately then there is a conversation about reorganizing states, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because we're dealing with, you know, a, a, a colonial state as well as a number of uh, so-called princely states that had this sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of pretend autonomy, and so there's mm-hmm. a need to kind of integrate them and reorient things. And you know, the you know Bombay presidency, the Madras presidency, um, you know, the, these are like colonial categories. And so there's mm-hmm. a there's a linguistic reorganization. Um, and when one of the demands at the time is Punjab also should be reorganized and Punjabi should be made the language in Punjab. At the time, it was Urdu. And mm. um, in the 1951 census, uh, Hindu groups, uh, the Hindu Mahasabha, uh, as well as Congress uh, leaders promoting uh, promoted this narrative that we don't want to create a Punjabi-speaking state because it will be dominated by Sikh and we don't trust them. And we don't want them to have their autonomy because if they do, who knows what else they might demand. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and Nehru is fully with this project. So in 1956, they passed the reorganization of states uh, and Madras is changed into, you know, Tamanad and, 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 you know, Kerala, Arisa and Bombay mm-hmm. is reoriented as Maharashtra and then Gujarat and, other states and Andhra. And so, so there's this like linguistic reordering of the country. It is denied in Punjab. Mm. And um, it's seen as a sect demand. Uh, and so uh, they don't allow it. And Hindi and Urdu, you know, become maintain the, the linguistic uh, sort of the language of the state. Um, and there's another push by the Akalis and by other groups to, to sort of demand Punjabi be made the, the language of Punjabi Subha movement. Um, mm-hmm. 1961 census, again, Hindus, large numbers are encouraged to tick off Hindi as their mother tongue and disavow Punjabi. Um, mm-hmm. And that is used as evidence to say, actually, Punjabi is not spoken in this place. And so we can't really make it the official language. Um, and so Nehru dies. It doesn't happen in his lifetime. Um, and then the, the Punjabi Subha movement takes off and it sort of presents itself more as a sort of linguistic struggle um, and, and loses the, the, the perception or tries to lose the perception that it's a sex struggle. Mm-hmm. And finally, in 1966, this reorganization is sort of clinched. Um, now, it means that that 33% of Punjab that ended up in India is reduced further and you have uh, Punjab, Haryana, and Himachal. And so the Punjab that we look at at the map today is about 25% or so. Um, now, at the time, it's seen as a tremendous victory. 
mm. because in this state, finally, SEC will be a majority, something like 60% maybe, and they can make Punjabi the official language. And that will be the place where they can exercise autonomy. Um, mm. So, and, and there's a lot of debate about how to read that moment. How do we make mm. sense of that? And so there's, on the one hand, there's like this kind of nostalgia about greater Punjab and, oh, it would have been so great had we all been united and events on the ground today kind of um, affect that, that interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, but we should pay, you know, bear in mind that people at the time were struggling for this reorganization um, mm -hmm. and they, they sought it out. And again, in the previous times, in 56, they were accused of being communal and secessionist for wanting mm -hmm. a sex state. And so they recast it as a linguistic demand and they achieved it in 66. And then from there, that, that's the kind of that, that, that cleavage. And, and we still see its ramifications today, that Hindus can imagine themselves as part of a you know, Hindi-speaking community across North India, and they can have their literature, their poetry, um, and their traditions. And Punjabi becomes this sort of backward, vulgar Bindu language that they disavow. I, I can't mm. tell you how many times I've met somebody who's, you know, says, oh, you know, I see we Punjabi and we're Punjabi too, uh, but uh, we don't speak it. You know, mm -hmm. my nanny speaks it amazing. My dada speaks it, uh, but they wouldn't let us speak it. And we learned Hindi, you know, but I see we Punjabi. Mm. And, uh, you know, you get a similar thing on the other side of the border in terms of Urdu, but it's, it's different. Um, mm -hmm. So, and then, and then, so what are Sek left with? Sek are left with, by and large, uh, carrying the, the sort of linguistic flag for Punjabi. It's the language mm -hmm. of our gurus and Gurwani. And um, then that, that in itself becomes cast as communal, as sectarian, mm. just loving your language and your identity. And that's what causes a lot of people to rethink what was this compromise in the 40s? And what was this you know, decision to align once, you know, us with, with the community, with the, with the Congress and accept being a part of India if this is what was going to happen? Now, from there, I don't want to keep going on and on, but that becomes then the grounds for beginning to understand the 70s and 80s. Hmm. It's important context. I mean, right. the, the, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's um, oftentimes there's a, an oversimplified binary that is applied to analyzing, for example, the current moment. Is this a sick issue? Is this not a sick issue? Mm. Uh, and, and I think by understanding this complex history, um, you, we understand that that simple binary doesn't, it's, it's, it's not really applicable and that creating, creating that binary is a way to sort of frame, um, or it can be used as a frame to, uh, segregate, um, support around something that is broad based, like, you know, these, this movement has a distinctly, well, before uh, let's, 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 let's actually get into, <laughs> don't let me go on now. Let's, let's get actually into what's going on right now. Um, to, to, if I can simply frame it and, and you correct me, uh, where, where needed, this process of liberalization, this process of marketizing agriculture, this process of deepening the cycle of debt in uh, Punjab, but also in Haryana, where the Green Revolution 
uh, is really implemented continues. And we see uh, many, many of uh, are likely aware of the kind of drastic rise in the rate of suicide among farmers who are uh, deeper and deeper in debt uh, to the system, to these corporations. And as you said uh, earlier that, you know, the BJP now is going, well, they're using sort of a similar logic that the state has been using for a long period of time, which is, uh, oh, there's something wrong with agriculture. Let's make it more efficient. Let's make it, let's, let's innovate. And they institute these laws that would further privatize uh, or neoliberalize the farming system. And can, so can you now um, talk more about this current moment and, and these laws and um, how this has ignited the kind of response that we're seeing from farmers on the ground. Right. Um, yeah, that's a, you, you, you frame it really well. Um, I think, so the thing to keep in mind, as I said, the alternative visions for the agrarian economy are present in the late 60s and 70s onward. Um, because of increasing crop yields, and rising prices, the economy appears buoyant. So it looks like a sort of mirage. But um, in the mid 90s, sort of early 2000s, uh, it's clear, right? That this is not sustainable, it's a problem. Uh, rising costs uh, of things like pesticides, fertilizers, but also diesel, um, inadequate storage facilities, um, and land exhaustion, soil depletion, and yields are not, you know, rising forever as uh, only like the most, you know, um, um, delusional economists would think that they were supposed to, right? Uh, so people are saying at the time, look, something has to be done. Uh, agriculture is not as remunerative. Uh, it's not functioning well. These things need to change. And that conversation had been happening throughout the 2000s um, and, and, you know, 2010 onward. Um, and so... And, and, and so you have this kind of phenomenon where every year or so, peasants, farmers groups are demanding a rise in the MSP because the price that they set to purchase the crop uh, doesn't reflect all of these additional costs and all of this additional uncertainty. And sometimes the government relents and the price the MSP is raised a little bit. And, and, and then other things like loan waivers and, and, and uh, you know, uh, other subsidies and bonuses. Now, in the midst of that conversation about we need to do something about agriculture, people are trying to, to get it done, and there's really brilliant economists on the ground who, who've made those arguments. The BJP puts forward these three bills, and uh, they do it without consulting any farmer or labor unions on the ground, and they make the claim that these are reforms. These are the much-needed, long-awaited agricultural reforms. Now, the first thing we should do is dispense with this language uh, because it's untrue. These are not reforms. There's nothing mm -hmm. to reform. They're actually just uh, a corporate handover. Uh, and they're creating a parallel system of private procurement and distribution that is supposed to exist alongside the public system, uh, along with you know, eliminating you know, protections for hoarding, um, and legal recourse for contract farming. 
Um, and so uh, it means that uh, the two key elements of the Green Revolution infrastructure, if you will, which is the MSP and the Mundi system, will be uh, enervated, weakened, and eventually collapse. Um, these, these laws allow private companies to buy crops at market prices from farmers directly. Uh, the corporations don't have to pay any taxes or dues on what they purchase. Um, they can store the crops in unlimited quantities. Um, and if there's any dispute between them and the farmers, the farmers have no legal recourse. Instead, it goes to a district magistrate who will invariably side with the corporation. So, and these corporations are not going to bring inefficiency, efficiency or innovation to agriculture. They're simply going to speculate, hoard, extract, and make more profit. Um, now, the BJP government promulgates these laws in the middle of a pandemic, like I said, without consulting farmer unions, mm -hmm. and then passes it through uh, in September. Um, and that is what sort of the farmer groups are, have been, uh, farmer and Keith Mazdoud groups have been mobilizing to, to oppose. So the, and, and this is, this is really spearheaded in Punjab. Um, and, and is a, the responses, like you said, are coming from both, uh, farm, farm, uh, unions, as well as the labor unions, the, the workers that work on these farms. Um, and, and, as I understand, this is a relatively historical or historic um, moment because uh, farmers and the laborers that work on them, where there's already sort of a, a class uh, difference or, or a relation to um, production difference between these two categories, but there's also caste differences among these people. And I imagine other cultural or um, even regional uh, uh, differences between some of the members of these different unions. Um, can you talk a bit about how how these unions uh, and and their members organized and and um, as far as you're aware, the ways in which they came they they might have overcome some of these um, perceived divides. Yeah, that's a that's a really great question and. Um... We are witnessing something historic, um, and for for many different reasons. But on the question of the laborers and the farmers, I mean the the very slogan resounding throughout the protest sites is "Kisan Mazdoor Ekta Jindabad," and uh, you know, long live the unity of farmers and laborers. Um, you know, we have to understand in Punjab, it's not like the usual uh, sort of zamindari systems that we've seen elsewhere. It's not some you know, large landowner you know, having thousand acres right. and uh, having these tenant labor, farmer, sharecroppers working for him. Um, you have in Punjab lots of self-cultivating uh, proprietors uh, who are in the small to medium-sized, uh, you know, land holdings. Um, and they have no compunction about engaging in cultivation themselves. The sort of Brahminical Hindu hierarchy that sees manual physical labor as degrading 
doesn't apply in Punjab uh, because of the revolutionary ethos of Sikhi. Um, but nonetheless, they often employ uh, field laborers to work alongside them uh, or during the harvest or during the planting or you know, during putting pesticides and fertilizers. Um, so there is a, there's a relationship there. It's hierarchical, it's exploitative, um, and it's based on caste because the land owners are largely Jat and the laborers are largely Dalits of the Musbi or, or Jamar caste. Um, and so there's a kind of inherent friction there. Uh, there's an antagonism there. Um, but the Kisan unions, uh, the most of them have a very progressive outlook. They uh, recognize how uh, you know, their fate is tied to the fate of labor unions, laborers and labor unions, and have built relationships with the Kayat Mazdur unions. Kayat Mazdur unions are organizing, for instance, to gain greater wages for Dalit laborers, to gain greater rights for Dalit laborers, to fight back against atrocities committed against Dalits. The people that they're fighting are usually Jatan. Uh, but these are, you know, right-wing conservative Jats. Uh, the mm. Jats that are in the Kisan unions have supported them in their struggle. So, and, and that's where we got to kind of see how real solidarities have, have been built up. One of the um, most important groups on the ground in Malwa is the Zameen Prapati Sangarsh Committee. And their aim is to secure one-third of village common lands for Dalits to cultivate their own land holdings. And this is a statute in law from the 60s, but it's been subverted and not implemented uh, almost everywhere. So this committee, and it's made up of largely Dalits, is engaged in that struggle. And a lot of the Kisan unions support them in that fight to get one third of Shamanat lands for cultivation. Right? This is not a radical redistribution of all land holdings by any stretch, but it is very, very meaningful and important for people on the ground. Now, the, the Jat land owners who don't want that are worried that if these Dalits get their own land and cultivate it themselves, they won't work as laborers on their fields. Right, And so they oppose it, but it's a kind of multifaceted support and opposition. Um, now, the Keith Mazdur unions um also oppose these laws um because with the dismantling of the public procurement and distribution system uh they too will be impacted by greater volatility rising costs and fewer rights and sort of bluntly they see neoliberal hindutva as their greatest threat right mm -hmm. and so the BJ, this is not, you know, this tired, cliched, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. No, mm. that enemy is vicious, majoritarian, brutal, and they have to be opposed at all costs. So they've come together. And when we say this coming together, we don't have to get you know, romantic about it. Uh, it's not that all differences are put aside. Uh, differences remain. There are tensions. But they've come together on this issue to fight this vast, great threat to their well-being. And the hope is that in the course of that struggle, 
the Kisan unions will be empowered. The Kayat Mazdur unions will be empowered. And when they go back to their villages, they will be stronger to fight for Dalit rights and bring about those other changes in the rest of society. So I think we have to like keep that you know, critical lens. Um, we have to ask those difficult questions. We shouldn't be satisfied with sort of platitudes, um, but we should appreciate what solidarity looks like on the ground in its imperfection. Hmm. Now, and, and I've heard of uh, anecdotally uh, something that I thought was, it did ignite a, a flutter my romantic uh, leftist heart a little bit was hearing um, of, of, of actions where uh, Kassan unions, primarily Juts, would go to support actions, say, by the labor unions by doing things such as cleaning their eating utensils and things like that as a sort of symbolic gesture uh, of, of kind of breaking down caste barriers. Um, are you familiar with that? Have you heard about that? And, and, and are there other tactics that are being employed to sort of break down people's um, barriers between each other? Uh, well, that, that's interesting. I, I don't think I've heard of that anecdote. Um, I think that like sometimes the uh, these kinds of gestures uh, make a lot of sense in this kind of all India framework, and um, the sort of where the stigma of caste is so brutal, um, so petty and profound at the same time. Uh, the hierarchies are so vicious. And then these sort of Gandhian gestures uh, seem so important. Um, mm-hmm. In Sikhi, we've been emancipated from the logic of purity and pollution. And so, you know, cooking together, uh, cleaning together, uh, sharing utensils. Uh, again, my reading is that this is not drastic. Um, okay. It's, it already happens. Now, it happens in the sense of at these, at the murche, at the nake, at the blockades, people are sitting and eating together. They're cleaning mm. together. They're sleeping together. They're, you know, at the front lines together. And from the accounts I've heard, people are not um, observing that those distinctions. Mm. Um, now, when they go back to their villages in their regular course of their lives, yes, that discrimination does take place. Uh, and it is a sort of blight on the Sikh community that things like separate utensils and, you know, sleeping areas and such are maintained or separate areas of villages or cremation grounds. I mean, you, you do hear about this and that is there, but, but, but it's not such a leap at the protest sites because that ethos of, of common humanity, it's, yeah. it's not romantic to say, like it is there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, that's a great. Uh, I appreciate that perspective. The the farm and labor unions began um, resistance uh, going back into the summer, mm-hmm. and their resistance was staged primarily locally, um, uh, going doing things such as surrounding. Um, government of, state government officials' homes and uh, pro- protesting on site in these important these places of 
like state government importance. And um, as I understand, the there was a, a real essentially a realization after that point that the state government not only wasn't going to do anything, but sort of couldn't do anything mm. because the nature of these laws are federal. They're they're coming right from the top. Um, what leads to these these blockades that we're seeing now? These these mass um, mobilizations of farmers, of uh, laborers, of urban supporters, uh, uh, people of all ages, and while it is a primarily while, while the majority of of participants are sick, there is you know we're seeing these wonderful images of people, Muslims serving and eating longer together, protesting together, etc. How how do we get to that point of these blockades and and what's the logic behind um, the this form of protest? Right, important. Um important questions and, and directions for us to think about. You're right that um, we can't just see this as sort of something coming out of the blue, um, this miraculous march on Delhi um, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, fixate on, 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 on this moment on, in November. Um, there was a grassroots mobilization uh, that took place over the summer. And, you know, maybe, you know, American... Uh, sec or, or progressives really have to pay attention to that because what the unions did over the summer was remarkable. Uh, their members in the thousands mobilized during the pandemic to bring awareness about the damage of these laws. And they went from village to village, organizing small scale events you know, for anybody that has ever done any kind of organizing or activism, this is that, you know, patient, thankless, inglorious work. And they put it in um, and brought people together um, and informed them about the danger. And it was that buildup over months that got more and more people involved. And like, usually we just kind of gloss over this and we're like, All right, let's get to the let's get to the tear gas, right? But, but like, unless right. you do that work, then the, those like tear gas canisters will disperse everybody and they will all just retreat. So mm -hmm. it's that work. Um, once it gets announced that these laws are, that these bills are, are, are you know, going to be law in September, um, the issue is escalated. It's sort of, there's a ratcheting up. Um, like you said, there's demonstrations in public areas. Uh, they turn into makeshift encampments. Um, you know, you're giving speeches, you're burning effigies, uh, making demands. Um, they block the railroads. Uh, they, you know, free the toll booths and toll plazas. Um, they surround the houses of politicians. Uh, more and more escalation. Um, when the laws are finally passed in September, um, you know, there's several encampments. Um, that are uh, sort of growing as more and more people come to them in Punjab, um, you know, one at the Shambhu border, one at the other sort of sites along the Haryana border, and um, drawing in more and more supporters, um, more and more rousing speeches, more and more serious thinking and strategizing. Um, th at that time, you know, the Akalis 
make the drama of breaking with the BJP. Um, the Congress obviously is up in arms against this. Um, even the Ahmadmi Party or the Lok Saf Party, uh, sort of unanimously, all of the political parties in Punjab oppose these measures. Uh, they pass a, a symbolic bill in the Vidhan Sabha, the State Assembly, uh, nullifying these three laws. It has no effect uh, because agricultural policy is the subject of the center government. Um, so it's seen as a symbolic gesture. And from that point onward, these political parties actually mean very little. Um, mm -hmm. And they're sort of reduced to the periphery. The unions have insisted on the independence uh, from political parties for this struggle. No political leader is given space to speak on the stage. All of the party workers are welcome to join and sit in the Sangat, but nobody's allowed to kind of you know, give a little election speech um, at sure. this site. Um, and so then once the laws are passed in September, at the end of September, the question becomes now what? The laws have been passed. The state government is fully against them, but it's impotent. So what should we do? And that's where, you know, people start saying we have to turn our eyes to Delhi because that is the source of our antagonism. That is what we have to confront. And I don't think we can overstate how significant it is for that decision to turn one's attention and confront the most majoritarian, right-wing, uh, authoritarian government in recent history. And that also is a kind of buildup over the, you know, all of October. There's all sorts of different possibilities about what should we do, how should we do it. There's protests and solidarity rallies in, in other parts of the world, even at that time. And it leads up to the call on November 25th, 26th to march on Delhi. And that, I think, is where a lot of people started paying attention because of how incredible the scenes were of these mm -hmm. unarmed protesters pushing back against water cannons and tear gas canisters and batons and marching on the capital. And uh, that was the historic coming together of the Punjab, uh, Kisan, and Ketamaz unions, as well as those in Haryana, as well as common people in Haryana who saw this and marveled at what they were seeing and joined in at that time. Um, and then on, on the 26th, you know, crossed those lines and marched all the way uh, to the capital. Um, did you want to talk about the sick part of it now or how should we? Yeah, I mean. Because that was the other part of your question, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's characteristic are sick. There is a sick characteristic to the way that this mobilization has unfolded. We're seeing Lungar constantly being cooked and served, being fed to whoever, whether they're protesters that are there, whether they're uh, nearby uh, people who, who people who live nearby, um, and and we're seeing uh, Gurdwaras set up in the back of of, of uh, public carrier uh, trolleys um, and and Sangath uh, sitting on the floor um, uh, outside of, of of these trolleys uh, mm -hmm. participating in Divan and um, we're hearing slogans of Bolle Sonehal Satsriyakal we're hearing uh, distinctly sick uh, elements uh, yet we know that there is a considerable portion of these protests that 
are not sick people. They are they and and they're there uh, altogether. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, like. I, I, I don't know if I have like a specific kind of question to ask you as much as I'm kind of curious, like what, what the, like, what do, what do people on the ground make of this? You know, how, how do they, how do they think of, okay, this is, there's this, this strong sick element to this, but this is for all of us. They see they and they seem to see these things as intertwined. They seem to see the the sick element of it as being for all all of the uh people participating um and then at the same time there's been this because of that sick nature uh, of the protests there has been again coming back to part of our earlier discussion this demonization by the media of labeling uh the whole protest movement as this separatist uh, sick uh, Khalistani terrorist. I'm hearing Maoist thrown in there now, and there's there's a whole thing about pizza now too, mm. because there was a guy serving pizza, a sick <laughs> serving pizza to people. But like, can you can you? Yeah. I don't know. Just sort of lay out like what you're seeing, how, how the grassroots, how the people of of that are participating who may not be sick are seeing that that sick element. Uh, and then, of course, this this response and demonization that we're seeing. I wonder if you can kind of lay this out for yeah. us a bit and yeah, share I mean, your thoughts. Definitely, you know, very important questions. And 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 you know, your I think what you um, what you demonstrate is the complexity of it. And so, uh, I'll I'll give my my take on it, um, which I guess we're, we're supposed to do at a podcast, right? Um, but yeah. it's but it but it is a it. yeah right. It is a perspective. And there are many ways to see these uh, issues. So I think, um, and I think there's an added layer of, um, of of analytical distance, in addition to physical distance, for us in the diaspora, and sort of sitting here in the West and trying to, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, dissect these categories and, and understand what's happening. Um, and use the kind of lenses that we've inherited and apply them in that place. So yeah. um, we should say that first, this was a mobilization that was begun by these Kisan and Ketan Mazdur unions. And it was because of an economic threat, right? These laws would devastate them and in extension, the entire regional economy. This kind of privatization is... You know, this is part of that neoliberal logic across the world, and they had mobilized to fight against that. Um, and that's what drew in huge numbers of supporters that were not Kisan or Ketan Mazdurs, like you said, the professionals, the urban workers, students, uh, uh, transporters, and, and the rest of society. Um, now, at the same time, the people that were mobilized, the people that have been at the forefront, were in our sec. Now, we shouldn't have any anxiety. We shouldn't be insecure in noting that, in declaring that. Yes. Now, just because a person is a sec doesn't mean that Sikhi is the most important thing to them. Right? Mm-hmm. We have to allow sec to have the diversity that every other religious cultural group has. Right? Um, you can be a sec and be uh, you know, more concerned about one issue versus another. And it shouldn't be a kind of blemish on your identity, you shouldn't be derided for being a fake or a half-sec. 
Um, Certainly. So, 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 but the people at the forefront were sick. And uh, Sikhi has infused these protests. It's permeated them. You've mentioned Langar, the ethos of, of Seva, uh, the fact that um, everybody is welcome. Um, there's no discrimination, not just like all Sikh are equal, but all humanity is equal. And that is an important difference in Sikhi. Um, and we can't, again, um, overstate the sheer bravery of our people in confronting the state. And that bravery is grounded in Sikhi. You know, the invocations of Guru Gobind Singh Ji, the invocations of Baba Deep Singh or Sardar Bagail Singh, um, mm. they're, they're very much present. All those jakare that you hear mean something. The ardasan that happened means something. And, um, you know, we, 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 we can't sort of uh, overlook that. Um, and then we can't assign a kind of primacy to that at the same time. And so this is the messiness. I think that um, we should do our best to undo the division between the economic and the religious. There are people on the ground who, uh, you know, they're Sikh uh, and they're Kisan or they're Ket Mazdur. Um, they have their case. They don't have their case. Um, they love Gurbani. Um, they oppose neoliberalism. They're fighting the BJP. Uh, they're heavily in debt and everything else that a complex person, you know, might undergo. Um, so, so, and that, and I think that's a kind of analytical distinction we should, we should kind of respect and pay attention to and know that you can grab anecdotally one person from here, one person from there and spin a kind of narrative. But for, you know, if you take a sort of broader look at it, uh, my sense at least is that uh, the, the this is the way that the issues are intertwined, um, and that's the kind of nature of the of the fight on the ground. That it it's it's for a repeal of these laws, and then it extends into a larger discussion about state autonomy and what does it mean for a democracy not to tolerate dissent from a particular region and a group of people. Um, but uh, and 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 then finally, you know, the, the point about Sikhi, we should say that. If you don't take my reading of it, the people in Haryana are saying this, right? The people in Haryana are saying, look, you know, districts like Sonipat or Rotak are right around Delhi. We could have surrounded Delhi months ago. Mm. It's when we saw the Sardars at the front lines fighting those police at the Nakke and pushing past that we too got inspired and now we've joined. And so now mm. it's become, in a sense, multi-religious because there are Hindus and Muslims in Haryana and elsewhere, they're all at the protest sites. Um, and everybody is welcome, and it's incredible to see that solidarity. But the sect being at the forefront is something that we should acknowledge and respect and, and think through. Um, now, the, the point about the narratives that are spun from it, I think uh, what's important uh, on, on two levels. One is there is a new leadership that is emerging on the ground from these protests. Like I said, the existing political parties have been discredited. Uh, it's amazing to see even sort of, you know, every interview I've seen, people sort of mock and ridicule all of the political parties. They have no credibility. Nobody has any faith in them. Um, you know, far more politically acute and astute than what we often see in this country with the Democrats and, and you know, politics here. Um, so true. Right, and, and so people are emerging and um, 
the Kisan leadership is very much held accountable by the people there. And it's a it's a it's an interesting relationship to watch that they're not going to be able to cut a bad deal and escape the wrath of their own people, right? That is part of the months-long mobilization and education campaign that was conducted. On the other hand, I think here in the West, and, and, and I say maybe around the world, there are so many new voices that are analyzing and interpreting these events. And they're writing poetry and songs, but they're writing op-eds and they're writing analyses and they're giving interviews and they're putting on, you know, discussions and forums. And that's wonderful because for so long, it's the same tired voices, you know, the sort of Punjab whisperers of these people mm. sitting in Delhi who can kind of say, oh, we know about that region and we'll use these stereotypes and we'll use this sort of these caricatures to, to describe these people um, for, for the rest of India's consumption. And that's where like these accusations of, oh, are you this group? Are you that group? And they sort of try to pigeonhole people into it. And what's great is to see the variety of responses from new voices. Um, and I think that's what we should kind of support and, and foreground moving forward. Yes, absolutely. And it's a, you know, briefly, we can, we can just say that um, the, the cultural product that I, well, product is kind of a cheap word to, to use for the sorts of expression that have come out of this moment, um, be it the music, the poetry, um, the folk songs that we're seeing sung on the ground, um, has been an explosion. There's been this kind of like beautiful uh, potpourri of things that have manifested from from this movement. And uh, I've seen you. Uh, I, I I follow you, of course, on Twitter. And and uh, I saw the other day you were you were drawing a, a line between uh, Jazzy B and uh, Sant. Uh, is it Sant Ramudasi? Yes. Uh, and um, I don't know. I, I wonder if you wanted to just sort of ruminate a bit on on the kind of cultural element of things that you're seeing, because uh, I've really loved following that too. Yeah, I mean that tweet, you know, it came because somebody shared that song with me. It's a song called Bhagavatam, and uh, look, I think it has one of the most brilliant choruses I've heard in a long time. Uh, it's something about honor, hosla, Bhagavatam, and in my mind, the first thought was. All of Jazzy B's Fukarapan from before is forgiven. <laughs> he has redeemed himself in my eyes. And uh, I'm not going to tolerate any critiques of Jazzy B now. Whatever happened in the past, Jazzy B at all costs. Yeah, like that song is exquisite. And um, every lyric is so profound. Of course, there's a, a, a we should say, Vrinder Sema, I think, is the writer. So uh, all credit to the writers. My gosh. We, sure, we should, sure, you know, I think sure. they get underplayed in. In a lot of these, uh, you know, Geetkar in India, uh, in Punjab. Uh, fortunately, there it's a it's a bit better of a situation than here, because one beauty of 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 music production in India, and this goes back to poetry and Gurbani and and maybe even before, is that the author finds a way to put their name or their village name in the verse. Right. So there's a kind of a copyright that gets, you know, put in, not, not a copyright in this legal sense, but it's just a kind of indication that this came from here. And so you can read a poem uh, or hear a song and there's their name in here. And 
you know, look at what, like, um, you know, Drake's not doing that, right? He's he's rapping somebody else's verses and not disclosing where it came from. That's the whole ghostwriter culture hey, here, right? You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, right, right. So there's no ghostwriting in, in Punjab, and that's a beauty of of the sort of tradition of, of music. So that song was amazing. And I was listening to it, and I was like, wow, you know, we, we got to kind of appreciate this cultural production. And then I thought, where, you know, what, what, what is the song that would define this? It, for me, it's Santa Ramudasi's Uttarnda Vela, which is another one. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible song. It, it, it sends shivers down my spine. And you can see the, the, the fortitude, the creativity, the determination in those words. Um, and I want to maintain the fact that one can listen to Santa Ramudasi and Jazzy. Yes. And you don't have to like be, uh, you know, pious or ratchet, you know, you can kind of enjoy uh, that spectrum and draw on different things. Now, uh, and then and then for, for the artistic side, we should acknowledge and appreciate, you know, people like uh, Kanwar Garewal, Harf Jima, Jas Bajwa, um, Ranjit Baba. These people have been on the ground supporting this struggle. Uh, from the beginning, um, yeah. and they've been making music and writing these wonderful songs. Elan is a really great song. Um, uh, Jatta Ho Kam is a really beautiful song. Um, Harf and Kanwar have done a couple of collaborations that are really great. Uh, they've also been like, you know, doing seva on the front lines too. Yeah. And I think in a sense, um, shaming their fellow artists indirectly to step up. Mm-hmm. And you talk that hard shit, right? You act like you're some surma bahadur, chakadunge, hojuga, hojuga. Well, when it comes time to do it, where are you at? And I yeah. remember I had this feeling, and I'm going to sort of go on and on, but like one of the differences between like Punjabi uh, hip hop and uh, African American hip hop, um, I was hearing this song where uh, they were rapping uh, sort of in Punjabi about like, Oh, you know, the, the, the SSP, the DGP, the SHO are my friends, right? All the little police, Tanidars, whatever are all in my, you know, they're my friends and I can get whatever I want done. And I was thinking, how amazing is that difference? Because here, hip hop emerges from insurrection and a challenge to state authority. Right? A denunciation of the police. What is the most famous, you know, hip hop song? It's just fuck the police, right? So, yep. so, so like, and how, and you know, this was the, as Chuck D said, this is the CNN of the streets. This is, a, you know, our, our narrative of ourselves and our struggles. And of course, hip hop goes in a hundred directions, you know, after that point. But I was, I was like sort of aghast at the fact that here, the Dabi rappers are like gloating about having political connections. Like, right. That's, that's pathetic. Right. The flex. Yeah. yeah you're, flex. But your flex is what? Your flex is you can call some politician on speed dial. And right out of a jam, like what? What, what kind of sur mabahadar are you? What, what is this? I, I lick the boot very well. What's that? I I lick the boot oh, very well. Right, right, is and the- and and um, and or or I'm just like so enamored by my little petty dushmaniya. Um, mm. This and that. So so in this struggle, what's happened is you've heard this articulation that your fight is with the state. And I think there's a thread in Punjabi um, aphorisms and, and, and sort of sayings that it's only worth something to fight the powerful. 
you do taka on some mara greed but that it means nothing so if you're going to fight if you're going to stand up for something you have that oppositional disposition towards authority and that is something we can actually take pride in like i'm against all the false bravado machismo you know asi punjabi asi wo aflana but like mm-hmm. seeing these songs is like okay but there's something to this now and one can actually right. you know feel empowered uh i think i saw something like 200 songs have been written in the last few months yeah and it's wonderful uh that the fact that they're they're articulating this new idiom of resistance of unity um and uh yeah we should we should be able to appreciate it yeah i love it i love it i like i i i do you like this that um the uh gippy graywall that zalem song oh i don't think i heard gippy's it's it, it's a good one it, there is a great uh viral video of a bunch of uh of of ladies singing it just like um a cappella with clapping oh dope and the um the chorus is asi vakt paade ange zalam sarkaranu like so it's like it's so cool to me that like these big mainstream acts are like the chorus of your song is like we're going to we're going to give trouble to the damn government here and like we're not turning back and and i mean what a what a departure uh from the kind of machismo that you're talking about right and and i think lately i mean this has been a kind of big discussion about um artists in general and i think people are keeping track of who's come out who come out who came out when what's the nature of them coming up right mm. are you doing just a generic post are you posting something else on your social media um you know the the entire controversy around gurdasman mm. mm-hmm. instructed and i'm so sort of glad that this issue has been illuminated now at such a broad level that is not just you know a few people isolated kind of um grumbling about what they didn't like me being one of them um and now it's a kind of like everybody seems in tune um gurdasman's uh you know when he when he decided finally to come to the uh the 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 blockade um and the fact that he was prevented from speaking yeah. is a wonderful demonstration of collective popular anger towards somebody that you would have thought is supposed to be the most beloved punjabi forever and yeah. i think that it's a, it's a kind of complicated story or multi-layered story somebody a, a journalist wrote a really good article a couple of maybe a week or so ago about the controversy around the punjabi bolli and uh, his comments about everybody ought to learn hindi um, right and his alignment with the bjp and mm. potential political run with the bjp um mm. and then the backlash he sort of felt because of that those comments and then the insults he hurled at people who were protesting against him and then the ramifications for that um mm-hmm. and i think the there's there's two other elements to it that sometimes kind of we we leave out so it's not just he makes these disparaging remarks about punjabi and then he insults people that are challenging him uh on the one hand he has a long history of patronizing uh this uh dera yes uh, in, in nakodar and this baba and again one can say 
he's indebted to this Baba or he was because this Baba inspired him or saved his life. One, you know, then then if you if if you feel like that, you can, you know, pray to your Baba and you can go visit him and you know do what you want. But Lasma did something different, which was he openly, publicly bowed before him and heaped lavish praise on him and brought thousands of people to his mela and drove people in the direction of this Baba publicly. That's very different from one's personal belief system. And people in Punjab were rightly disgusted with the conduct of this Baba. And from there, there's this kind of groundswell, you know, uh, you know, questioning of his status as like the most beloved, right? When people saw that. And at the same time, he's making songs about, oh, Punjabis are all drunkards and smoking cigarettes and drinking. And meanwhile, this Baba is, you know, smoking uh, two cigarettes in front of you and, and yeah. you're bowing to him, right? The other part of it is, he was a close supporter and friend of KPS Gill, who uh, is a detested figure in the Sikh Punjabi community. And um, his uh, sort of much sort of praised, I guess, in like uh, right-wing Indian circles, but uh, he's an absolute monster and uh, engaged in kind of brutal uh, genocidal campaigns against Sikh uh, in the mm-hmm. and, and afterwards. And, uh, this person was a dear friend of his and mm-hmm. uh, you know, they appeared together and you know, supported each other. And, and so from, from then on, lots of people have disliked Gurdasman and it gets kind of like, it's very rarely does it get kind of space to be articulated except on like tweets and social media and elsewhere. Right. And um, I think those two things, the patronage, public patronage of the Baba and the longstanding alignment with KPS Gill is what informed so many people to oppose him vehemently when he denounced, uh, when he, when he emphasized the need to learn Hindi and made those comments uh, to people at the, at the show. And that's the sort of backdrop to why he wasn't allowed to speak here. And it's the arrogance that he has when he just refuses to make amends, to acknowledge his mistake. Um, and I think it's that arrogance that 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 is catching up with him. You can, he'll still be rich, he'll still have a very comfortable life, but he won't have that dukkha mm-hmm. which And it's a, and it, excuse me. Well, the last point is just I, another kind of cringe thing I can't help but say is when you hear people defend him and say he did so much for Punjabi. As if he mm. did some seva for the calm. Mm. And you're like, yo, the, the, the people at the front lines that are fighting are doing seva. This guy wrote some very beautiful songs. He sung them and he made a pile of money from them. Right? Like we have to figure out what is seva again, right? We're losing sight of it. Every little thing you do for personal enrichment doesn't count as seva. We should, we should have a little bit of uh, respect for that word. Uh, just like langar isn't a free lunch. We should have respect for yeah. that institution as well. So I think that's my, my uh, you know, one instance of like where this cultural realignment yeah. and rebirth is coming and how we are sort of calling out artists and their arrogance um, and, and, and their political alignments. And it's, it's beautiful I mean, to you- see. 
can kind of see Gurdasman like as an arch, almost minstrel in a way, uh, in terms of like representing a sort of uh, safe, idealized Punjabi folk uh, past, and and especially in light of of all of all of what you've just touched on, uh, it, it just betrays um, his real sort of uh, regard for the the very uh, culture and history that he made his uh, his fortune on uh, and it, and it's and it's uh, just that he should be uh, denied the stage and that uh, new voices uh, come to light that are actually willing to be oppositional and um, yeah I think that that's such a great great point so I mean we've we've gone over an hour yeah. and a half here and, and I'm just want to say again like I'm just so grateful uh, Navyug for for this time I think that this has been an incredible conversation. I, I think maybe we can just end. Um, if you can just just uh, talk us, uh, you know, a, if you can briefly just talk a bit about, you know, these these protests are are building a massive amount of public awareness uh, it, across India, uh, across the world, um, and and the the awareness that that has brought the oppositional. Um, Nate, uh, position that it's it's put many many people who are sympathetic to these uh, the the farmers and laborers. It has put a lot of pressure on the central government to the point where they are actually sitting down with these uh, union leaders and negotiating. Thus far, as I, as far as I've seen, they're they're everything that the uh, central government has put forward has essentially been rejected because it falls short of the demands. So I, I wonder if you can just, um, I guess, update us on sort of where we're at now with this. And and um, I don't want to ask you to uh, kind of prognosticate or, or mm -hmm. predict the future, but if you um, see uh, maybe some potentialities of, of, of what um, this may lead to and and I guess ultimately, what is um, you know a, the the goal? Like, what what do the what do the farmers want uh, in in the immediate term? And then and then do they have a kind of a, a further reaching uh, vision for for um, what you know they can wield this collective power to accomplish for the betterment of of uh, of uh, farmers and and of people generally? Yeah, amazing. Um... Sort of question and, and the prodding in, the, in that direction. I think maybe um, at another time, there's there's several people on the ground that it would be good to kind of figure out a way to have them appear on the program and explain some of those trajectories because they would have a, a better grasp of it. I'll say two things though. I think that um, we it, it's incredible what we're witnessing. I can't overstate that enough. Um, you know, this is a government, like I said, authoritarian, majoritarian. Um, presenting itself as invincible. And it's a lesson for the rest of the world that a government is invincible until it's not, right? All of its claims of, you know, being efficient and determined and, you know, passing whatever resolution it wants and getting things done can grind to a halt. And yeah, now they're sitting at the table. Now they're negotiating. Uh, they're coming back and forth with proposals. Uh, every day, the union leadership has to give updates to the people. Um, and these are very, very important symbolic victories in a long struggle. 
I mean, imagine uh, the fact that people there are saying, we're ready to be here for six months. Uh, we're ready to be here for a year. We're not turning back. Um, that is the kind of determination, I think, that can bring such an authoritarian government to the table and can ultimately lead to a victory for this movement. Um, what exactly is that victory? Like I said, the initial demands, there's four points, but the main one is the repeal of these laws. Um, that doesn't mean everything goes back to normal. There are all sorts of proposals on the table, in the air, about reorganizing the agrarian economy, um, realigning priorities to make it more equitable, to make it more uh, sustainable. Um, and it will be the struggle that will determine which course it takes. Um, I think for us sitting here uh, in the West uh, or, or wherever your listeners are, take inspiration. Look at what our people are capable of doing and then look around at your society, right? Look mm. at what uh, you know has to be done here. I mean, one other note I just want to kind of add is, remember um, one of the uh, announcements was, um, we don't need any more donations. We don't need any more money. Right. If you want to support this movement, come to the blockades. We need people out. And I just couldn't help but see the contrast with, you know, uh, politics as such happening here, where everything is about fundraising. There's actually no other imagination besides how can I fundraise, right? How many people come and say, can we start a GoFundMe? Like, where can I put my donation? I mean, what is this? this Biden was sort of begging for funds to try to, you know, get the presidency. And that's not going to go anywhere. When the fascists are at your door, when they're demonstrating in your streets, your donation will not stop them. Um, and the people that actually do fight the fascists, mainstream media okay. here denounces them as, mm. as, as you know, uh, this or that. So I think what we see in Punjab uh, should inspire us to learn new lessons about how to conduct politics and what it means mm. to engage in direct action, what it means to fight for your rights, um, the cost of fighting for your rights. And I think it's infectious in the sense that if you care about the situation in Punjab, if you care about people being exploited and excluded and marginalized, necessarily you ought to begin to care about exploitation and marginalization and exclusion in this society. And you start to fight against that here. You cannot just bracket it off into some international solidarity, but the status quo is fine where we live. No. Right. Uh, it, it, it has its own logic to it. Um, and it's time we embrace it. Uh, couldn't, couldn't say it better. And, you know, if I, I think if I would just add a one little thing to, uh, sick folks listening to this, uh, you know, wherever you are, um, our tradition our as you put it, uh, perfectly revolutionary ethos is its benefit for humanity is self-evident when it's in action and it's inspiring when it's in action and when we take up the call of uh protecting all people uh fighting against issues fighting against forms of uh exploitation marginalization that affect everybody and we are the first at the lines our jikare go out to all people and other people will answer it's not we are not by ourselves 
and I, I feel like it's, um, you know, a duty of, of sick to, um, ignite that revolutionary spirit in, in everyone, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of what community they're from. And, and we have the power and ability and the built in, uh, philosophy to, to do that. And, um, I I just want to thank you so so much uh, again, Abhyog. This was amazing, a wonderful conversation, and uh, I hope we get to have more. No doubt, by Shavash to you and and for creating this platform, and uh, I look forward to the future. That was Navyog Gill. You can find him on Twitter at Navyog Gill, and you can find this show at the One Pod. This episode was available earlier to our patrons who support the show at Patreon.com/slash/the One Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.